Welcome to Collected Talks of David Solomon, podcasts on Jewish history, the Bible, Jewish mysticism, philosophy, and thought. Find out more about David's upcoming classes, publications, and other recorded lectures by visiting davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. This is part one of a four-part series entitled The Power of Change, The Challenge of Teshuvah that David recorded for Caulfield Shul in 2020 as a series of Zoom lectures. For listeners to the podcast, please refer to the episode webpage where you will find a link to the video lecture on YouTube. We're going to explore uh, the concept of uh, Teshuvah, the concept uh, a, a, a foundational concept in Jewish thought and, and life and history. And we're going to explore it from a number of different angles. Uh, now, and it's important for me to say at the outset, and I'm sure that the rabbi would uh, agree with me, that uh, I'm, not, uh, I'm not the rabbi. And therefore, uh, I have to be very... I have to be very careful because um, it's easy on a topic like this uh, to get a bit preachy, especially if uh, it's the month of Elul and we're talking about personal change, we're talking about improving ourselves. Uh, my, my job is to be a scholar, so I want to take a more um, uh, perhaps scholarly approach to this and I want to look at the uh, history of uh, the development of the idea but also occurrences throughout Jewish thought and history where we see the concept of Teshuvah appear and what it can teach us about Teshuvah uh, at, uh, at all of those various stages. So that's what this exploration is going to be about, but I think it's interesting and I think what we'll learn from it is that it is an appropriate discussion to have for Elul. What is, what is the concept of Teshuvah? And let's first of all deal with what the word means, and I uh, have said this many times, and I'm sure you've heard it many times, is that the uh, best translation for the word of Teshuvah uh, is, of course, Teshuvah. Uh, that is that if we try and uh, encapsulate that in one English word, we're only going to capture one aspect of Teshuvah. So we could call it uh, repentance. Some people want to say the word means return, and it does. Some people want to say the word means response, as in the tshuvah, the answer or response to a question. Uh, and uh, some people uh, want to focus on its um, spiritual dynamic of the concept of uh, repentance. But we're going to look uh, carefully at what it means if it does mean repentance or if it means any of those other terms. Because the one thing that seems to emerge from the discussion of teshuvah is that it is ultimately, and I'm going to come back to this point later, and I'm uh, making it now, and some of you have also heard me make this point before, but I will be coming back to it, is that the Jewish concept of Teshuvah is, requires an inner transformation. It is not simply a case of outward modification of behavior. It's not simply a case of saying sorry uh, it is a case of effecting a change from within to become, in a sense, a different person. And once we transform ourselves, uh, we transform others around us. Not a different person in the sense that we're wiping our personality, but a person who is much more authentic, uh, much more true, 
much more pure, someone who has looked inside themselves and changed fundamentally those things that and conditions that allowed them to become the person uh, that did the wrong thing on a previous occasion. So all of that we'll go back and we'll look at, we'll see how that idea is exemplified, that uh, the inner transformative idea of Teshuvah. Uh, in our generation, the whole concept of Teshuvah has in some ways been corrupted by the word Baal Teshuvah. Anyone heard the term Baal Teshuvah? Yes? So we say of someone, oh, he's a Baal Teshuvah, she's a Baal Teshuvah, which in our culture has come to mean that someone wakes up one morning and says, you know what, I'm going to be religious and I'm going to keep Shabbat and I'm going to keep kosher and I'm going to go to shul. I'm going to be a Baal Teshuvah. But of course, that's a complete corruption of the concept of Teshuvah because those things are things a person, a Jewish person in the world should be doing anyway. That's got nothing to do with the inner question and the inner response to how I can be a better person, how I can be a person that has eradicated uh, the habits and the activities uh, that were sullying my former self uh, and were ultimately wrong for the world. Uh, and that is the transformation we're looking at. So let's look, let's go right back to the beginning. Let's go back to the beginning. And in the beginning, uh, we're going to look, I'm going to look today at just two or three examples. I am in the course of this series going to look at historical examples um, right throughout the span of Jewish history. But I want to look today uh, to really get to grips with a couple of aspects of Teshuvah at uh, a couple of figures from Tanakh. And if we incorporate the Bible, if we incorporate Tanakh into Jewish history, uh, who's the first person? Who's the first person to do Teshuvah? Now, it won't come as a shock to you to realize that there are a lot of people in the Bible, a lot of people in Tanakh, who are doing uh, some wrong things. Uh, they're running around doing some bad things over there. But very, very few of them uh, actually repent. Very few of them have the opportunity or the foresight to make that inner transformation. And who is the first person that does? So really, if we're just on the surface of the text, and we've got a lot of people that Midrash tells us to do Teshuvah, but on the surface of the text and in Midrash, the first person to do Teshuvah is, of course, Cain. It is Cain, the son of Adam and Eve. And I don't know if you heard about it, but Cain uh, killed his brother. Uh, I'm not going into that for ribble right now, um, but uh, as a result of a series of circumstances, Cain got up one day and he smashed his brother's head in with a rock. A terrible, terrible thing to do, obviously. Now, how do we know, how do we know that um, Cain did Teshuvah? On the one hand, on the one hand, when God comes to Cain and he says to him, look what you've done and your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground and he shows Cain the awfulness of what he's done, Cain's immediate response 
which I'm going to talk about again, the idea of Gadol Avoni Minzo. My sin is too great to bear. In other words, I'm assuming that Cain must have thought that God would just kill him. But God doesn't kill him. Instead, he causes Cain to be an eternal and ceaseless wanderer. But we know he did tshuva because the Midrash tell us, tells us that years later, years later, Adam, Adam the first, meets up with Cain. I hadn't uh, seen him since those awful events. And he meets up with him. And he says to him, oh, Cain, how are you doing? Cain goes, I'm fine. And Adam goes, well, what, what, what happened with that nasty business where you killed uh, Havel, you killed your brother, and uh, you, 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 you had some awful punishments. Uh, you had to uh, wander around uh, ceaselessly. Nothing really worked out for you. Uh, you, had a, you were given a mark so that people uh, wouldn't kill you. you. There was no real way out for you. And Cain goes, oh, everything worked out fine, he said to Adam, because I did teshuva. And Adam goes, what's teshuva? And Cain goes, well, there's this thing. God's got this mechanism in the world where if you do something wrong, but you acknowledge it, and you're prepared to change, not just pay lip service to your crime, but actually change inside the person that you are, come to a realization with no excuses, and to take responsibility for your behavior, and to really transform the person that you are, that's teshuva, and if you're prepared to do that journey, then you can be restored to a pristine state as though you'd never done it. And Adam is amazed. He's amazed. He goes, oh, that's incredible. I mean, if we look in the Garden of Eden, when Adam himself sinned, there's no teshuva. Adam is sinned, and God punishes him. He expels Adam and Eve from the Garden, but they weren't exposed to that idea that their behavior could be modified through self-transformation. Cain was. And so Cain tells his father years later about how he did Teshuvah. And Adam is so impressed that he utters the famous words that go on to become Psalm 92. Tov lahodot la Hashem. It's good to give thanks to Hashem. We, it's the, uh, the psalm that we know is Mizmoshele Yom HaShabbat, which the Midrash tells us was composed by Adam after he had discovered that Cain, his son, had done teshuva. In mystical sources, in mystical sources, no one should get confused. This is not in the Bible itself and not even in Midrash, but in later mystical sources in the Zohar and so on, we see that Cain is actually able to... Uh, fully restore his soul because he is reincarnated into a later figure in Jewish history 
and that is the figure of Jethro. The Zohar tells us that Jethro was an incarnation of Cain, and in fact comes to be the father-in-law and the friend of Moses, because the Zohar tells us that the soul of Havel, the soul of Abel, is reincarnated into Moshe. So the Zohar understands that uh, the soul of Cain reaches its final rectification in Yitro. That's why Yitro is called Hakeni, the Kenite, which is an allusion to the idea that, in fact, this is the same soul uh, as, this, as, as that of Cain. So we learn from these sources. I'm not talking, obviously, obviously, we're not talking now about these sources on a literal level. We are talking about these sources on a thematic level uh, to understand that the idea of Teshuvah is read by the sages and thinkers of Israel into the very beginnings and origins of humanity. That a person can change. That the outcomes of your behavior, however bad, and believe me, you know, fratricide is a pretty bad sin. The outcomes can be rectified and there is a way back. There is a way of uh, restoring uh, the integrity of your humanity, even in the face of sin. And that's whether it's on a big level or a small level. But who's the second person in the Torah to do Teshuvah? Uh, anyone know? Anyone want to have a go? Who's the second person? We've got a lot of people doing things wrong, but you should be surprised how few of them actually go out of their way to restore the things that they've done. And uh, I, I, I'm going to put someone out there, and it's a bit obscure, but uh, when Abraham, when Abraham is uh, wandering around over there, he uh, encounters a king called Avimelech. You'll find this in chapter 20 of the book of Bereshit, uh, of the book of Genesis. And uh, they go there and, and, and Avraham tells Sarah to say that uh, she's his brother and uh, not his wife because uh, he doesn't want to be killed on her account. And indeed, they abduct Sarah and, uh, they ke and Avimelech keeps her for himself. He doesn't end up touching her, but he's got her there in his, in, his, uh, in his quarters or in his harem or whatever, and he's just waiting, and God comes to him in a dream. Now, uh, uh, apart from the fact, those interested in dream sequences, that this is actually the first dream in the, in the, in, in the Bible, but God comes to him and he explains to him that, you know, <laughs> you've got someone else's wife, and that you'd better fix up that situation. So what we see is the very next day, Avimelech takes Sarah and he restores her to Avraham. Teaching us that a foundational idea, that there are two ideas really, at least in the concept of Teshuvah. One is the inner transformation, but the other is the outer restoration or an attempt to uh, correct or to fix or to restore the situation that you have corrupted. And we see this with Avimelech. But we also see with Avimelech, as we saw with Adam, <laughs> we saw the concept of, and, and, and this, is, this is possibly, if there's one point I'm going to be making today, it's this point. 
is that you know we uh, we today uh, it would appear and once again I have to be careful I'm, I'm a scholar not, not not a rabbi sitting here I don't want to um, get preachy but what we do see today is we do see a culture of excuses people have all sorts of excuses for why they behave in any particular way the whole of 20th century psychology is built on the fact that oh you must have had some trauma with your parents you didn't get on with your father you didn't get on with your mother you were bullied at school this happened to you that happened to you oh you poor thing you went through this oh you're part of this minority you're part of that particular underprivileged you're oppressed by this you're oppressed by that and who can blame you for being the piece of dreck that you are look at the circumstances you went through look at all the different things and people go yes that's right it is not my fault i'm a consequence of social circumstances i'm sorry no, no, no. and what we what we really need to understand is that proper teshuva doesn't happen unless you're doing it without excuses you take responsibility you own your behavior and we're going to see this in later examples as well. And you own the way in which you're going to fix it. Because you are the one that behaved badly. And you are the one that has to fix it. And no one can change you but you. When we look at Adam, you know, Adam is accused by God of having done the wrong thing. And he did do the wrong thing. And out come the excuses. Oh, well, what do you think? You put the snake there, you put the woman there, you put the tree there. What do you think? It's not, it's not my fault. I didn't do it. The woman took the, the fruit. She gave it to me. I don't know. And also, even with Avimelech, even with Avimelech, Avimelech might have had a very, very good claim because Avimelech says, oh, I didn't know. He told me she was his sister. I didn't know it was his wife. I did this entirely innocently. In other words, he's even using innocence as an excuse, which is a very, very high-level excuse. But as God says to him, and if you look in the, in the Talmud, in Masechet Babakama, they unpack this story, and God's going, <laughs> you still did it. You still did it. No one asked you. You might have thought it was his sister, but no one said you had to take his sister and abduct her. So you're still a grubber person who does that kind of thing. You might on this occasion have done it innocently, but had you thought it was his wife, you probably would have killed him. The fact that circumstantially you were innocent is irrelevant here. But still coming up with excuses. And of course, Avimelech himself went and uh, gave Avraham some uh, very healthy uh, presents so that Avraham would pay for Avimelech. We know that if you pray for someone else, uh, it's, uh, it's a very meritorious thing. And we, 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 we'll look at a little bit of that as well. So the power of repentance and the power of teshuvah lies first and foremost in no excuses, in owning our behavior. As Cain said, Gadol avoni minaso. My sin is too great to bear, which opens the door for ultimately the change that is required. But unless a person seriously takes responsibility and owns their own behavior, that, 
that 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 path is not going to happen. I'm going to look at one more uh, biblical figure because I, I, this biblical figure would probably require their own talk. But I'm going to look at them for just a few minutes, um, and they because it exemplifies what we were talk what I've been talking about uh, in this in this small session, and that is that the famous famous case of uh, King David. Now, uh, some of you would uh, be familiar with this, obviously. I'm not going to go over yet again in detail the, uh, the behavior of King David as we find it in uh, chapter 11 of the second book of Shmuel. Um, I'm assuming that people that are joining me for this session uh, and a lunchtime Zoom are going to be fully familiar with that. But uh, in short, in brevitas, obviously David is a great king and uh, uh, the armies are going out to war even now without him. He's got very good generals and he's there on the, uh, it's a nice warm balmy summer evening in Jerusalem and he's uh, hanging out on the rooftop as you do and he looks over at another rooftop in Jerusalem, as you do, and he sees a woman bathing, as you do. And obviously, he's extremely taken with this, um, and he uh, summons her, he has her brought to him, and he uh, has intimate relations with her, and she becomes pregnant. Uh, the problem with that is, is that she's married. And she's married to someone who is a soldier in David's army. So David tries to organize, first of all, the fixes. So we can see David trying to fix it without taking any responsibility for his actions and his behavior. He tries to fix it by getting the husband to come home from the army and sleep with his wife so that everything will look kosher. But that doesn't work because the man doesn't want to leave the army and, he, and, and he's under orders, he's under field orders and he doesn't want to go home while all his mates are sleeping in the mud in the tents. So uh, David uh, organizes for uh, this soldier to be uh, in the front line of a very, very difficult assault against the city and he is killed. Once he's killed, uh, David takes Bathsheba, the, this uh, soldier's wife, Uriah's wife, and uh, brings her to him, and she lives with him, and uh, eventually has the child. And it's Nathan the prophet who goes to David Amelech and says, King, I have a justice problem, I have a social justice problem. I've got a situation, we had a, we had a, a, a visitor to a, to a place, a visitor and a guest of a very wealthy man who instead of taking from his own flocks went to the house of a poor man who only had one sheep and this sheep uh, it was so pathetic that this sheep was not even a sheep really it was more like a household pet it was a member of the household it would eat at the family dining table it was the only sheep they had the family loved it and instead of serving one of his own many sheep to the guest, the rich guy went to the poor guy's house, took his only sheep, slaughtered it, and fed it to his guest. 
And David goes, that's just so appalling. That's horrendous. That man should die. That's just awful. And of course, Natan Hanavi says to him, Nathan the prophet says to him in this phenomenal words, when you read chapter 12 of the second book of Samuel, Atahaish, you are that man. And immediately, immediately, King David has a realization of what he's done, a realization of his own responsibility, a real, an, an ownership of his own sin and his own behavior, and he utters the words, Khatati Lashem, I've sinned to God, and he collapses in uh, a process of, uh, of, of the beginnings of Teshuvah. Now, that, so in other words, there's no excuses coming out. It's not like Adam and it's not like Avimelech. There's no excuses coming out. But what is interesting is that to compare it with another king of Israel who said exactly the same thing and not that far away in time. And that was David's predecessor, King Saul. If you look at chapter 15 of the first book of Samuel, where Saul is told by the prophet Samuel to go and wipe out the nation of Amalek. I'm not going into that very, very complex moral story right now. And Saul does that, but he does the wrong thing. And he preserves the king and so on. And he has a fight with the prophet Samuel and all of these things that Saul is doing that are not entirely uh, in accord with how he's meant to be behaving. And when Saul threatens to take away the kingdom from him, what does, when Samuel threatens to take away the kingdom from Saul, what does Saul say? Khatati la Hashem, I've sinned to God. But then he adds an excuse because he said, Kiareti, because I was afraid of the people. I did it for political purposes. I understand it wasn't quite the correct thing, but I have a reason for why I behave like that. I have an excuse. And that didn't help Saul. The kingdom was ripped from him and was given to another. The exemplar that I want to bring from King David is the fact that, as with Cain, real teshuva begins where there are no excuses. Where we realize that on the one hand, we have to do an outward restoration to attempt that. And we'll talk more about that perhaps next week about the concept of how you go about outer restoration on correction of the sin that you've done. But the inner transformation, you cannot open the door to inner transformation if you are holding on to excuses. If you are holding on to justifications for your behavior. Everybody has that doorway into Teshuvah, as Adam Rishon found out, as Adam found out. It's a phenomenal idea in Judaism and a phenomenal idea in the world that a person can be defined not simply by what they do, but by the power of change. Ultimate, the ultimate 
human ability to change oneself and to modify one's behavior, but that doorway cannot be opened uh, unless we own it, unless we remove ourselves from any other excuses and justifications. This is the essential point that I wanted to talk about today that emerges from the sources that we look at uh, in, the, uh, in the Torah. I mean, even if we look at Saul, you know that, I mean, Saul, I'm sure all of us who have had children get exasperated, uh, I'm ending on this point, get exasperated by children when they say, when they say, we're trying to correct their behavior, and they go, but I've said sorry, but I've said sorry. I mean, I even meet adults like that, right? There's no, there's no change in behavior. There's no acknowledgement. But I said sorry. But saying sorry is not to shuva. Saying sorry is not to shuva. To shuva begins when we eradicate all our justifications and excuses and begin to own our ability to change. So we'll talk more about that and other topics, and we'll go right through Jewish history, hopefully, and to show how different people have used this power for the betterment of themselves and for the betterment of the world. I hope everyone stays safe, has a good week, and that that journey of Teshuvah that is so emphasized in the month of Elul uh, is fruitful and meaningful for all of us uh, with, uh, with no justification. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the talk. For episode notes and transcripts, or to learn more about David's next classes and projects, visit davidsolomon.online. You can also find David on Instagram or Facebook. Thank you. We hope to see you again soon.